And David, I'm kind of sick of the old theme music. And to be completely honest, I never really liked it. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 1 of Acquired, the podcast about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today we are covering a company that is absolutely synonymous with sports, ESPN. The worldwide leader. Indeed. And as they say in the very first moments of their 1979 broadcast, if you're a fan, if you're a fan... What you'll see in the next minutes, hours, and days to follow may convince you you've gone to sports heaven. Indeed. Acquired has gone to sports heaven here. <laughs> it was obligatory. For longtime listeners of the show, you know that we cover, um, you know, typically one acquisition and that we talk about it and we grade it and we have a pretty standard format. This episode covers not one acquisition, but three, each one sort of fairly monumental. And I want to outline what that's going to be so that uh, the story has a little bit of structure to it. As I mentioned, the first broadcast was in 79. Uh, ESPN was acquired by ABC in 1984. Just one year later, in a surprising turn of events, the smaller Capital Cities Broadcasting Corporation incredibly bought ABC, took its name, and got ESPN along with it. And then finally, in 1996, 95, 96, yeah, uh, yep. there was a $19 billion buyout of ABC by the one and only Disney. And a little, little teaser, the Capital Cities acquisition had a little help on the way from a certain Oracle in Omaha. Indeed. That we'll get into. Excited to dive into that. So as David was pointing out to me when I was sort of teeing up, uh, you know, how should we introduce this, the through line and the most important part of all of, of this, you know, these acquisitions that each sort of included ESPN was ESPN itself. And so much so that by 2006, a UBS estimate was that ESPN alone was worth 40% of Disney's total value. Yeah. I love the UBS estimate, man. That was like that was right before I joined UBS. So. Oh well, it could it there it definitely wasn't accurate then. Was, it, you was weren't, a, uh, yeah, you weren't not yet a, a David Rosenthal <laughs> estimate. <but. laughs> Would have been two years later. Indeed. Uh, so this episode will largely focus on ESPN uh, through the mid '90s and the sort of digital and streaming eras are a whole nother story that that we'll need to tell at some point. But this era of ESPN and its sort of rise to uh, truly be the worldwide leader in sports really deserves its own episode that we're going to dive into today. Speaking of ESPN and inside baseball, yes, pun definitely intended, we did a really fun limited partner bonus show last week. We took our LPs behind the curtains of how VC firms really work from corporate structure to incentives. If you're interested or just want to support the show, you can click the link in the show notes to become a prestigious acquired LP or go to Kimberlite.fm slash acquired. Um, if you're new to the show, you should check out our Slack at Acquired.fm. It is full of brilliant people that are uh, providing their hot takes on the tech news of the day, often M&A and IPO related, and uh, is also just a really great, really helpful, really friendly community. So I've really enjoyed, um, particularly over the last month or so, we've been on break over the holidays, uh, just getting to, to chat with folks in there has been really cool. All right. Well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. 
This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two, Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny, I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the visa numbers, I just pulled up my visa notes, Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's, what, 200 times as much throughput at Statsig than at Visa? On the customer side, Statsig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and Friends of the Show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse-native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. David, how are you feeling about the history and facts on this one? Ben, I'm cool as the other side of the pillow. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I'm glad you teed me up to, to say that. I'm glad I didn't know how you were going to respond. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was both awesome and so awkward. <laughs> All right, listeners, let's take it in. We start back in the 1970s. It's disco time. Things are crazy <laughs> in America, particularly crazy in the burgeoning cable industry, which is brand new, where all the entrepreneurs in America are headed. And we start with a guy named Bill Rasmussen. Bill was a former Air Force supply officer. He ends up getting into the television business uh, first as a weatherman at an NBC station in, in Western Massachusetts. But his, his lifelong dream is to get into sports. And he just loves sports. He's a sports nut. So he's doing the weather in Western Massachusetts. And uh, he starts just like reading sports scores <laughs> at the end of the weather telecast. And uh, turns out people like it. He moves around to a few stations in, uh, in New England, ends up kind of transitioning from weather into sports because um, he's a natural, becomes a sports director. And then in 1974, he becomes the communications director at the Hartford Whalers hockey team. There's <laughs> a real auspicious beginnings here. The Hartford Whalers at the time, their big star was Gordie Howe. And he was like larger than life. He had his own business interests. And Bill starts working for him personally as well and his family. Mm. And all's going well until Memorial Day weekend, 
1978 when Bill gets a call uh, from the Hartford Whalers that he's being fired as communications director. Mm. And then he gets another call from Gordy, from Gordy's wife actually saying, yeah, and we're firing you <laughs> from Ooh. the family as well. Ooh. Rough day, rough day. I, I couldn't verify this, but I believe his his son, Scott Rasmussen, who uh, had dropped out of college, was pretty young in his early 20s, was also working at the Hartford Whalers, also gets fired that day. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Too many eggs in one basket. A lot, of, a lot of eggs in one basket. But, you know, they're, they're pretty optimistic guys. They decide that father and son, they're going to team up, figure out what's next. So the first call they place is to a local guy. They're in uh, Hartford's in... Connecticut, right? Yeah, yep. they're in Connecticut. A uh, local guy in Connecticut who is an insurance agent named Ed Egan. He's working for Aetna. <laughs> you can, this leads to ESPN, we promise. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and Ed... This, all, this went from like the most exciting episode ever to like the yeah, strangest, like, most boring Yeah, the strangest, most boring episode. But we promise there's more to come. Ed, just like Bill when he was a weatherman, he really wants to get into sports. And he's been trying to convince Bill to start a cable network mm. uh, focused on Connecticut sports. And this was when Bill was, of course, the communications director at the Whalers. And the centerpiece, he thought, would be showing the Whalers games on this new cable channel. Bill calls him up and he's like, hey, I just got fired. <laughs> I'm looking for something to do. What do you think? I, I like your idea. I may not be as helpful anymore as yeah. I, I used to be able to. <laughs> and uh, But Ed is, Ed is undaunted. They chat and they decide like, okay, well, we're not going to get the Whalers. But like, they're still pretty interesting. Like People care about local sports. We can show Connecticut sports. We, we probably just need some stuff to kind of fill in the gaps between Connecticut sports. There's not enough of that. So why don't we add some entertainment programming as well and then they're like oh this is perfect we've got the perfect name for this it's going to be the entertainment and sports programming company esp like what could like it's perfect <laughs> it's very descriptive it's short it's only three letters exactly you know it's just like abc nbc esp esp <laughs> esp so they incorporate the company the entertainment and sports programming company on july 14th 1978 and it's worth taking a step back here I mentioned earlier that cable is kind of the um, it's like the internet of the time, like where all the entrepreneurs are heading at this point in the late seventies. So at this point, it's less than twenty percent of U.S. households have cable. The big over-the-air terrestrial broadcasting companies, you know, NBC, ABC, CBS, they're mm -hmm. still what people think of when they think of television. UHF, VHF, over-the-air yeah, waves. Exactly. You've got the big rabbit ear antennas, you know, on top of. Uh, TVs and on top of houses. And cable really got started as a delivery mechanism for houses in rural you in rural parts of the US where the terrestrial broadcast signals didn't reach. Which which is amazing in its own right to think about, gosh, we can't reach this over the airwaves, so we will run a cable. <laughs> We're literally gonna run a cable there. Uh, and, so, and that's more efficient. Like that that's kind of mind blowing to me that like it's more efficient than I guess the capex of building big radio towers is tough and Yeah, I guess so. Well I think I could be wrong here, but I think this is also part of like they ran wires cables along railroad lines, right? And that was for uh, telegraphs, but they might also then use that for... I know that was like Sprint's beginnings that yeah, we talked about on the Sprint T-Mobile episode. episode. By this time, by the late 70s, people had started to realize, huh, there's something slightly more interesting here than just rebroadcasting the big three 
stations like this what's cool about cable is it's not regulated so like over the air broadcasting <laughs> that is cool <laughs> yeah that like it's kind of <laughs> like the internet you know you know you can abc nbc cbs like they're basically controlled by the government not, not controlled by the government but they're regulated on what they can show what they can say mm-hmm. um but cable is the wild west and so hbo uh was the first kind of cable network got launched in 1975 a couple years earlier and then there's this crazy guy who's going to resurface down in Atlanta named Ted Turner. <laughs> he owns a bunch of broadcast stations and he's experimenting. He's like, well, I'm going to take my Atlanta station and I'm just going to rebroadcast it all around the country. Uh, and everybody's going to get my Atlanta. See, he had bought the Atlanta Braves baseball team. Mm-hmm. We're going to show Braves games to everybody. It's going to be great. So people are experimenting. It's against the backdrop of all this that the Rasmussen's and Egan, they're digging in. And they hear about this new kind of uh, sustaining technology, if you will, in in Clay Christensen terms, uh, that's coming along for the cable industry called satellite transmission. And it's supposed to be this like great new thing. They don't, they have no idea what it is. They're just like, great, we're starting a new cable network. We want some of that satellite stuff. (laughs) So they find out that RCA, the big uh, electronics company, they've just launched two satellites into space for video transmission. So the Rasmussen's, they call up (laughs) RCA and they're like, hey, we want some of this satellite stuff. Will you sell it to us? (laughs) RCA, they're trying to sell satellite space uh nobody's bought it yet so like oh great we got a customer great we can we can sell you that what what do you guys you know you you esp guys uh what do you what do you want to show <laughs> you must be you know traditional media folks like yeah. you know about this uh yeah. we assume there would be this mad rush of all these media people that wanted to use them so you know take your deep media background and pitch us yeah pitch us what are you what are you what are you gonna show and they're like connecticut sports <laughs> <laughs> and and the rca guys are like um so, you know, the thing about satellite, like what it does is it takes a video signal and it instantaneously transmits it all around the world. <laughs> uh, so you think Connecticut sports are going to be <laughs> and entertainment you know, and entertainment are going to be what people want to see all around the world. And they're like, huh. And then RCA is like, and there's this other thing, too, that, you know, with satellite, like it doesn't go down, you know, it's it's all 24 seven. So like whatever you put on this video feed is going to go out. 24 7 and this is like kind of blows their minds because at this point before satellite uh, cable and, and satellite the broadcast networks and even most cable networks that were using satellite they signed off at like 11 o'clock eastern so like people used to this is crazy i mean this is before our time but like yeah. you know our parents generation you'd watch tv it get to be 11 o'clock and then you know nbc cbs they'd be like well we're signing off for T- the night tv was done yep. tv was over for the day <laughs> and then you just get like a test pattern on the screen so they're sitting in this meeting and they're like huh interesting so how much would it cost to get a feed on one of your satellites and they're like $35,000 a month actually $34,167 a month and so they're like done we'll take it they have no money at this point like send us the invoice (laughs) net 30 can we have like net 90 yeah how about net 180 (laughs) so they go back and they're like okay great now we got to scramble some money together we gotta uh not only pay rca uh for space on their satellite transponder but we need to set up like a whole studio to broadcast. We need to buy some satellite dishes to broadcast. Where are we going to do that and how are we going to get the money? Turns out there's a town nearby called Bristol, Connecticut. Uh, which, that, which ESPN aficionados know as still the the home of the uh, worldwide, worldwide leader in sports. Yeah. yeah, worldwide headquarters. 
the town had this big open space, a bunch of acres that they were looking to lease out to a commercial business. And it's just a field, like a muddy field. (laughs) And um, but it's nearby. And so they say, great. And do you know what it was before it was a field? I didn't find that. What it? It was a dump. (laughs) ESPN's headquarters today are still built on an old dump. On an old dump. Amazing. (laughs) The most valuable media business in the entire world. (laughs) Yep. And uh, what's interesting about that is since there's no like trees that are growing there, it's this big wide open thing. It's actually perfect for broadcasting satellite because it's a complete clear shot. Exactly. They talk about this. They had actually first looked at another nearby town, but they couldn't get enough space and it was they didn't have a clear line of sight for the satellites. So obviously the dump in Bristol (laughs) was the perfect spot. Also, just like RCA, they lease this land. They have no money. <laughs> and they start a plan to build the studios and uh, truck in some satellite dishes. So they go out and they start, like, they hit the fundraising trail. They raise their seed round, a uh, little bit of money from other members of the Rasmussen family. And they get a, a venture capitalist in, in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, of all places. <laughs> just, like, right where I grew up. Silicon so Prussia. Yeah, Silicon Prussia. <laughs> Who invests, I think, the exact amount of one month of, of the RCA uh, <laughs> lease. So, like, $34,000. <laughs> and so, like, okay, great. This will get us going for, like, a little bit of time. Let's hit the fundraising trail for real and go get some real dollars to fund this whole thing. And interestingly, I was thinking about what their pitch must have looked like. So 20% of the U.S. had cable at this point. So they're very much doing the same sort of philosophy and pitch that Netflix was doing when Netflix started, you know, starting this DVD-based business when no one yet had DVD players. It's like, oh, we're right on this inflection point. Everyone's about to have cable. Like, we, we got the, we timed it perfectly. Yep. Yep. And, and indeed they did. <laughs> but also just like Netflix in the beginning, all of the you know sources of investment dollars at this point, they're looking at these guys and they're like, no. <laughs> We're going to need some very protective provisions in yes. these documents. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's anyone who's even interested for a long weeks, months, nobody's interested. They end up getting connected somehow with the Getty family in Los Angeles. <laughs> so like, you know, listeners, if you've been to LA, you've been to the Getty Museum, which is an amazing art museum uh, in LA. Uh, you, you might know of Getty Images, the, Getty. the stock image site, which is one of the sons or nephews. But of course, the big behemoth and true uh, sort of moneymaker and, and parent of the Getty empire is Getty Oil. Yeah. <laughs> and the family is just like nuts. They're crazy stories that we won't in- get into here. But like, this is a family business in every sense <laughs> of the word. <laughs> and one of the things that they're trying to do at the time, uh, this is again, 1978, they're trying to as much as possible, diversify out of the oil business. Uh, the family's going through generational transfer. They're looking for ways to, to get their money out of, out of oil and diversify it. And so this comes along and they're like, well, okay, <laughs> why not? And uh, there's a guy, uh, Stuart Eby, who uh, works for the family, who he's really like the champion of, of getting this done. So they start talking to the Rasmussen's about funding this and they're like pretty pretty interested the deal's taking a while though and the getty board and the senior family members they're like are these guys for real like who are these guys did and um bill, esp that doesn't ESP, even have a good ring to it yeah bill realizes he needs to prove that they have something that like is gonna once they get the money and get all this live that they have like really compelling content to put on to put on the channel 
So he flies to Shawnee Mission, Kansas. <laughs> ben, do you know what is in Shawnee Mission, I have no Kansas? Idea. No. The headquarters of the NCAA. Ah. Indeed. And so in March of 1979, they're still negotiating with Getty, and Bill emerges from Kansas with a deal in hand, signed deal with the NCAA to air all of their championships across all sports and regular season games across 18 sports, everything, uh, including the then super prestigious men's basketball tournament, the NCAA tournament. I think the year before was the Magic Johnson and Larry Bird faced off how, in the... How on earth? How, like, as I was doing research, it was it became apparent that they w- would have a hard time getting pro sports right. So they're like, oh, mm-hmm. we'll go with amateur. But like the NCAA at the time, it was no small thing. No, it was it was like being college football was huge. Bill, you know, great entrepreneurial fashion manages to get this contract. Uh, so he gets rights to every game that hasn't already been given to the big three hmm. networks. Hmm. Um, but that turns out that that's a lot of games because even in the NCAA tournament, the big three networks were only showing like the final four. So Mm. all the games leading up to it, uh, they thought nobody cared about them. (laughs) Turns out they were wrong. So Bill emerges with this contract. And then immediately after that gets Getty across the line, they invest $15 million, which is going to be enough to pay RCA for a couple of years, build out the Bristol facility, get the satellite uh, dishes, hire the first talent. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they now that what they bought was 85%. Well, yeah, so okay, this is what I was <laughs> going to get into. They invest 15 million dollars for 85% of the company. So like listeners out there, man, you think VCs are rough today. It's a tough series A. Yeah, that is a <laughs> Now, 15 million dollars was a lot of money. So to be fair, it was kind of like doing your seed A, B and C rounds all at once, but still. <laughs> yeah. The other interesting thing is, do you know what else happened as a part of that financing? There was a, a commercial agreement as well, but not with uh, with Getty. Uh, are you referring to the beer agreement? I am. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I, I will. Yeah, so Anheuser-Busch uh, came to an agreement with ESP. This is still mm-hmm. before it was ESPN. It's the largest advertising contract in cable television history yep. at $1.38 million uh, that they will uh, be the exclusive beer advertiser on the new ESP network because, and there's some quote that one of the executives ha- there had where they, they say something like, because we just thought, you know, beer and sports just go together (laughs) (laughs) this will come back in one sec on the on the day it goes live later in the fall but uh before they go live after they sign this deal i i couldn't find out who kind of initiates this but somebody whether it's getty or anheuser-busch or or somebody within esp they're like you know guys this esp thing (laughs) it sounds kind of corny and uh, it doesn't sound super professional and it's confusing because three-letter acronyms are you know broadcast broadcast channels Yeah. yeah exactly exactly so they start looking out and you know other cable networks that were getting started at the time they all called themselves networks it was like the you know dot ly you know domain name of the it was uh which or is, labs or whatever yeah which is fascinating because like what you know we have all sorts of different definitions for network today it doesn't quite make sense of why you yeah. would call your one sort of channel that runs across a cable a network i, I guess because all the endpoint homes were networked to over cable yeah. to the one broadcast source but. maybe it was that they they had a affiliate 
distribution agreements with different cable operators mm. throughout the country that could be, mm-hmm. which we'll get into in a minute here too. Anyway, everybody loves it. They say, great, we're going to change the name of the company. We are now the Entertainment and Sports Programming Network, ESPN. The worldwide uh, leader. Worldwide leader. And actually, I think there was a brief period there where they, they changed it to ESPN TV. It was like ESPN yes, dash right. TV. And they're like, oh, wait, we can't launch with that. Yeah, that's that's too much. That's too much. Let's go with ESPN. So they launched. They end up launching with ESPN. Also, before they launched, though, remember, Getty just bought way more than controlling interest in this company, <laughs> 85%. Um, yeah, you're now an oil company subsidiary. Yeah, exactly. And uh, if you know anything about you know the history of investing in startup ventures and what investors did back then, you know the popular thing to do was fire the founders <laughs> and bring in professional management. And Getty, in wanting to act like a true venture capitalist at the time, that is what they did. Now, in this case, it's debatable whether they did this because they felt like they should or because it was the right thing mm-hmm. probably both the rasmussen's were amazing entrepreneurs i mean getting that ncaa contract was like nobody else could have done that right. except somebody who was a true entrepreneur and at egan too but they weren't really equipped to like you know build out a media empire and to illustrate that point uh, so they got sold by these cable guys that they should spend all this money on a, a satellite transponder. And the way that they sort of orchestrated getting that all connected, apparently, and this is like ESPN urban legend, um, the cable was connected to the satellite only five minutes prior to the first broadcast. <laughs> so like it. not exactly sort of like operational experts in this industry. <laughs> I believe it. But, you know, and enter- extremely enterprising entrepreneurs. Extremely. So... That summer, the Getty family basically forces Bill and, and Scott and Ed to kind of step back from day-to-day involvement. They make Bill the chairman of the company, but it's kind of in name only. He ends up leaving fully the next year in, in 1980. But they bring in this guy, Chet Simmons. And Chet was a legend. He had been president of NBC Sports uh, at mm. NBC. And they convince him to come in and take over as president of ESPN. And he brings along with him this guy named Scotty Connell, who was his kind of number two at NBC Sports and who was Mm. responsible for all talent. And the two of them, they bring into ESPN even before launch and then in the first few months after launching, like some names you might have heard of, George Grand, uh, who depending on your age, you may may or may not have heard of, Chris Berman, Mm -hmm. Dick Vitale, Mm -hmm. Bob Lee, Mm -hmm. Greg Gumbel, amazing talent into this brand new startup cable network. And almost all these guys, except for Dick Vitale, are like 23 to 26. Yep. So like the Chris, you know, we all sort of like know of Chris Berman today. You know, you, you know, I think Bob Lee was 23. Yeah, I think that's right. So young, you know, super young hotshot broadcasting crew. Yep. They they were absolute pros at identifying and, and nurturing talent. Yep. So September 7th, 1979, they go live. And the first show that they have, they had talked about this before launching. They, they thought, you know, we're going to have sports. They decided to drop the entertainment. You know, uh, I don't know if that was the Rasmussen's or if that was when Chet Simmons came on board and they made this really, we're going to be 24-7, world's first 24-7 cable network mm-hmm. and first 24-7 sports destination. It's kind of amazing. They kept the E even though they decided before launch they were never going to be anything besides sports. Besides sports. But they thought the linchpin to all of this would be they would do a half hour highlights show uh, at 6.30 p.m., <laughs> kind of right in the middle of primetime every day. They're going to do this every day and they would recap the highlights and the scores of all the sporting events in the country throughout the day. This (laughs) this was like super innovative because 
the only way to get sports scores was if your weatherman decided to read it <laughs> on your local local TV channel or to open up the paper the next morning. Yeah. And even opening up the paper next morning, the paper went to print in the East Coast before the West Coast games were done. So there was no way to get scores real time. They thought this would be like kind of the linchpin to all of it. And they decided, oh, yeah, it's like the center of of you know <laughs> the day it's the sports center <laughs> and so when they launched at 6 30 p.m on september 7th 1979 the first thing that went live was sports center yeah and it was beamed uh via satellite to 1.4 million u.s households on day one and the network has been going ever since lee leonard and, and george grand on for 30 minutes on for 30 minutes followed by <laughs> by an incredible uh what a lineup. A fast-paced action of a slow pitch <laughs> softball game uh-huh. <laughs> the teams of which were the oh shoot i didn't write down it was two other beer companies that the teams were that was their name oh no way it was not budweiser <laughs> huh. and so they got into a huge row with anheuser-busch which is just the paid them 1.4 million dollars oh <laughs> and then on the first broadcast i think then they had wrestling they had some college soccer like it was a it was a long night following uh yeah, following it, sports center it was a hodgepodge yeah shall we say we will put this link in the show notes and I, we just tweeted out a link before recording this episode too with with just some sort of uh, photographs of the whole thing you have to watch this like first few minutes of the first sports center broadcast to understand how different it was than the sports center you know today yeah they say like welcome to the sports center and there's like a five to ten second video clip of like zooming in on some clouds and then there's like this weird slow pan to a guy in a studio who's sitting at, at the desk and it's like you're I think it was George Grand. Yeah, yeah, you're kind of like, whoa, you're like in an abandoned warehouse. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is not, this is weird. This is, yeah. and it's all terribly colored. And, you know, it was, it was 70s television. And apparently there was no uh, air conditioning in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> but of course and, they have to wear suits. And of course they have to wear suits. And so people are just like sweating. And <laughs> not to mention 70s suits being so stuffy. Yeah, yeah and, polyester. Yeah. Oh, it was great. It was great. So from that inauspicious beginning, um, <laughs> Again, on the back of this NCAA agreement, March comes around of 1980, they start showing the tournament games and they had hired this guy, former coach, to be the announcer for most of the tournament games, Dick Vitale. And it just like takes off. People can't stop watching all around the country. All this, you know, these exciting games in this single elimination tournament, this great announcer gets super excited <laughs> uh, calling them and people start coining. I don't know who actually who, if it's attributable, who first coined the term. People start calling this March Madness. It didn't exist before mm. 1980 when ESPN starts showing it. And this is a theme that I want to keep sort of listening for throughout the episode is, is ESPN in the business of market capitalization or market creation. Mm-hmm. And when I first started looking into it, I was like, wow, ESPN was like right on the crest of all these waves. Like, this is amazing. They got March Madness right as it was happening. They got, you know... No, they created March Madness. Yeah, later on, we'll, we'll get into Sunday Night Football and Monday Night Football. And actually, what ESPN did was create a platform on which live sports entertainment could become the phenomenon that it is rather than sitting there and capturing the the phenomenon that yep, it is. Yep. And I think it's worth a pause here. We've talked about this a little bit, but there were two real innovations that ESPN kind of had right off the bat. One that we alluded to is this concept of 24 hours. Like mm-hmm. they were the first 24 hour 
television network. Mm. Obviously, Ted Turner was was rebroadcasting the Atlanta Superstation, but CNN hadn't launched yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, what's crazy is like the the media business. You got to think back to then. Like, it was headquartered in New York, and all anybody thought about was the East Coast prime time. Uh, yep. So again, this you know the sign off at. 11 p.m. Eastern, that's 8 o'clock on the West Coast. It like, probably really benefited. I mean, I know Bristol, Connecticut is not too far from New York, but it really probably benefited them to be sort of out in the middle of nowhere and yep. not caught up in sort of the group think of how do you run a media company in the city. I think most of the, a huge portion of the cable penetration at that point was in the middle of the country and on the West Coast. Mm. Uh, again, where like the whole media industry and the broadcast industry hadn't built up as much. Mm-hmm. So that was one. And then two, they were like, there were other, you know, sort of niche cable stations out there. There were lots of crazy things happening. I feel like ESPN was the first really huge niche community that got built. Mm. Like, and I mean, niche in terms of like a hyper focus on one thing that like lots of people are passionate about, not niche in terms of small, Small, you know, because like the broadcast networks, they did everything like NBC Sports, you know, that was a small portion of what NBC did right um whereas espn was like just one thing and they started creating this community you know Mm. around it so it's interesting like the notion of like the internet as infinite shelf space or Mm -hmm. as sort of infinite pages in your newspaper yeah like cable was the first time we always make fun of it's like oh there's only 50 cable stations the internet has infinite but like going from three to 50 was kind of you know you could there were still some pretty big niches available for you to to own yeah totally so on the back of this and the innovation they were driving around it like march madness and the like they also got the NFL draft in April and they made the NFL draft a thing. Like mm-hmm. it was never broadcast before ESPN and they were always trying to get into the NFL. And this was the first thing that they could get was the, <laughs> the draft. NFL throws them a bone. Like, like, yeah, yeah, you can't have our, any of our, uh, you know, games, <laughs> yeah. uh, cer- certainly not the, the Super Bowl, but uh, here, take the draft, take the draft. Right. And they made it into like, you know, an appointment viewing an event and the clock and everything. Yep. So a couple of years later, they're growing like gangbusters. Also, don't forget in 83, they did have the USFL. That's right. <laughs> That's right. There were there was a period in time where there were a few uh, leagues competing with the NFL in the U.S. around this e- point. Yeah. And I, I think the AFL mm-hmm. may have been a separate league and then got folded into the yeah, NFL they merged, and created but the AFC was, and the NFC. There were one or two others as well. Yeah. Um, and I think the USFL was around for three years. The ES- ESPN got exclusive rights to it. They were like, oh my God, this is going to be huge. Yeah. We're going to blow. And then you know, ESPN has definitely had some, uh, for as much as they've sort of bet correctly and created waves, they definitely have also had some that, that just sort of fell well, apart. Part on. of what happened... I, I think this is right. So the Chet Simmons, who had come in to replace Bill as president from NBC Sports, mm-hmm. after three years, he left and he became commissioner of the USFL. Uh, and I think that's <laughs> what kind of got that relationship ah. going. But yeah, uh, despite that, growth was great. And a few years later, they're in like 1982 at this point. They're growing. They're adding more cable operators that are carrying ESPN. Uh, they're adding more advertisers. But all this is costing money. And of course, they're covering more events. That costs money. Mm-hmm. They're at a point where they're burning eight million dollars a month in 1982, uh, and Getty three years after they start broadcasting. Three years after they start, yeah. And Getty is financing all of these losses because mm-hmm. um, they own the business. <laughs> you know, it's not like they're out raising money because they already own the business. Right. They're getting pretty nervous though. They they don't like this. And as we mentioned already, the family is starting to think about like, hey, we might need to exit this whole 
thing. Um, We're not actually sure why we did it in the first place. Yeah, well, they, this whole thing and their oil business as well, uh, which will come up in a mm. sec. So in 1982, the family, the Getty family sells a 10% stake in ESPN to ABC to help offset some of these losses. Um, and I couldn't, I don't it's like have they're a, a broadcasting company. It kind of makes sense. They could be helpful here. Yeah, exactly. You know, help professionalize this thing. Yeah. Uh, and Chad, who had come from, from NBC had just left. So they do that. Now, that was a pretty bad move. I couldn't. I don't remember exactly how much they sold it for. It wasn't that much money. And it came with the right for ABC to buy a majority share later on. Kind of like the, the Disney Bamtech deal that we yep. talked about earlier and what's at probably season one or something. But Yep, yep. Um, yeah, that was back in season one. Wow. Yeah. Because right around that time, ESPN comes up with a third super critical innovation. And that is that they changed the business model for cable. So up until this point, when ESPN first started, and they were going out to all these local cable operators all throughout the country, they were having to pitch them to carry this channel in their lineup. And and for most of them, they said, yeah, great, like I'll carry it if you pay me. <laughs> so ESPN was actually paying uh, most of their operators to carry the channel. And then you get sponsors to offset the cost that you have to pay for distribution. For distribution, right, right. <laughs> so a couple of people at this point come in. So, so Chet Simmons leaves. A new president comes in from CBS, Bill Grimes. So now ESPN has DNA from NBC, ABC, and CBS, <laughs> all in the executive ranks. And another guy starts like right out of college, a super young guy named George Bodenheimer. And he starts as a driver. Like literally he would drive to the Hartford airport, <laughs> pick up all the talent that's coming back from like broadcasting these games all around the country, huh. bring them into the studio in ESPN, and ESPN. He kind of gets to know everybody and he quickly moves into affiliate relationships. So now he's going out, flying around the country and talking to these cable operators. And he starts to realize like, hey, ESPN is like the customers of these cable mm. operators, they love it. They can't get enough. If they didn't <laughs> Why are have we it, paying them? Yeah, if they didn't have it, they would revolt. <laughs> what if we what if we flip the script on these cable operators and we say, Yeah, I know we've been paying you, but like now you gotta pay us. And if you don't pay us, we'll pull the signal from you. Oof. And so this happens a couple times, and this has happened in a, a few sort of instrumental moments in businesses in history where they realize, wait a minute, we're actually doing them more of a favor than than, than yeah. they're doing us, and you you can actually successfully reverse the flow of money. We cannot overstate how important this was to ESPN and to the entire cable network industry, mm -hmm. all the cable industry. This completely changes everything, so much so that George Bodenheimer, years later in the 90s, under Disney, after Disney acquires w what ESPN would become, uh, he becomes the president of ESPN. Uh, <laughs> pretty good idea, yeah, I guess. Yeah, pretty good idea. Um, <laughs> so they pull the plug on a couple stations, and exactly that happens. All the subscribers of these cable distributors, they start revolting. Ooh. They start like picketing. They start showing up at the offices, like demanding ESPN back. All right. So basically, if we want to take this to business school, basically what happened is the end customer developed a stronger relationship with a supplier to yep. the cable provider than the cable provider itself. And exactly. would sort of, they were provider agnostic and would go wherever that supplier was. And so if you're the cable networks, like, is there anything you could have done to prevent this? You mean the cable distributors? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there anything you could have done to prevent this sort of disintermediation of you where you become commodity and the real value is content? And and really the question is here, 
you know, there's two ways to create a, a ton of value, own the linchpin of, of content or own the linchpin of distribution. Yep. And I suppose they needed to maintain a monopoly on distribution in order to uh, secure that they would be the only game in town to have access to that content. And as soon as they became commoditized and, and what people yeah. viewed as unique was the content, they were going to get, you know. I think this was probably inevitable. I mean, yeah. the same thing played out with the internet, right? Like in the first boom of the internet, Remember, telecom companies were so highly valued mm-hmm. and like ISPs and all that, and they controlled distribution and blah, blah, blah. And AOL was this integrated provider. They were an ISP and content company. But, you know, fast forward to today and like Netflix, Google, you know, what Facebook, what have you, are exponentially more valuable than Comcast, uh, you know, whoever's providing the pipes, yeah. uh, Verizon or whomever to to the home hmm. or to for wireless. So yeah, this is pretty big. The first big deal that ESPN does with a very large cable provider where the cable provider pays them was with Cablevision, mm-hmm. the Dolans, uh, mm-hmm. the Dolan family in Long Island. Who went on to own the Cleveland Indians. Yeah. And the New York Knicks and many other, mm-hmm. uh, and Madison Square Garden. Anyway. But mostly the Cleveland Indians. Mostly the Cleveland Indians. <laughs> um, they do a deal where Cablevision is now going to pay ESPN 10 cents per subscriber for every Cablevision subscriber. And that's the dawn of the affiliate fee mm. era. Um, Beginning ESPN's real behemoth real business. Behemoth. And that becomes two thirds of ESPN's revenue over time. Shortly after this, by 1983, ESPN has now become the biggest cable network in the US. And not just the biggest, but you know, the only one that's like making money from the cable providers mm-hmm. in addition to advertising. In January 1984, we'd mentioned the Getty family woes. They end up selling the whole thing, Getty Oil, to Texaco for $10 billion. <laughs> and Texaco, of course, is this huge oil conglomerate. They're not a family-run business. And they like, you, you guys have all that, like, there's all this stuff we, that we, comes we with Getty Oil. Yeah. <laughs> we got to get rid of this thing. So turns out there was a guy on Texaco's board uh, named Tom Murphy. <laughs> and uh, Tom Murphy was the president of a little company called Capital Cities. Indeed. Ben, what was Capital Cities? Boy, so Capital Cities, it is worth winding back the clock to understand what Capital Cities is and just what an incredible business story this is. So Capital Cities started with Tom Murphy in 1954 when he was recruited to run a struggling TV station called WTEN in Albany, New York after graduating from Harvard Business School. So Murphy was a lean operator and he was able to get the station to profitability by 1957. So just a few years after taking over, it's sort of new ownership, he's, he's new management, they, they lean it out and, and make it profitable. So he and the owner, Frank Smith, then decided to buy two more stations over the next couple of years in Raleigh, North Carolina and Providence, Rhode Island, and Capital Cities Broadcasting was born. Mm. So, you is know, it capital of these states, like, is that the... <laughs> uh, I think so. I mean, Providence, I think is, Albany definitely is, I think yeah. Raleigh is. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. yeah interesting. I think we didn't <laughs> I research. always wondered where, like, the capital came from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Murphy, of course... You know, he's got responsibilities across capital cities. He needs to get out of running this Albany station. So he needs to hire someone to do that. He, he hires uh, Dan Burke, who's another HBS grad, also no broadcast experience, but uh, you know, really clear, linear thinker, trusts him. I think it's an intro from one of their brothers or something like that. So hires him to, to run that station. So from this day forward, the DNA of capital cities was set. Uh, they were completely 
like bottom line driven, super lean, um, and they were very decentralized. Mm -hmm. So what was important was that uh, if you you think about sort of the um, Berkshire Hathaway style of management, Mm -hmm. we're not going to have a big, you know, central staff. We trust the managers to run their businesses. They're just like, you guys run the stations. Yep. We're allocating capital here. Exactly. Exactly. So so Murphy and Burke um, were a fantastic duo over the next several years with Murphy, who became CEO as kind of the master strategist and the capital allocator, and Burke, who was the COO, the lean, mean operator, sort of this, mm. this dream team of, uh, dream of executives. Team. So throughout the 70s and through sort of the mid 80s, they operated a super calculated strategy of expanding across local TV stations, some newspapers, and in this new cable medium, buying some cable stations all across yeah. the country. Cable distributors, right? So they're, they're, they're starting to buy up yeah, the, I think that's right. Yeah, it, it was distributors of the, you know, of the, they're much smaller than Cablevision, but the types of folks that, you know, ESPN as a network is then going out and doing these affiliate agreements with. Exactly, exactly. And another sort of tenet here is they only expanded within their media and publishing vertical, while others in the industry like CBS were embracing sort of an 80s era conglomerate <laughs> mentality really hard. Oh, they were man. buying minor league baseball teams. They were taking limos around town, you know. Just it, wait till we get to RJR Nabisco. <laughs> Capital cities, their their playbook was extremely simple. They would buy a station, they would operate it leanly and profitably, so they would get some great cash flow from it. Then, you know, with those nice cash flows and on the their ability to show those cash flows, they would raise some debt capital at favorable terms. Then they would go buy another station. Then they would quickly pay down that debt that they used, and then they would expand. Lather, rinse, repeat to dozens and dozens and dozens uh, across the, the U.S. And you know, they weren't big on PR. They weren't like people still don't really know the name Capital Cities. It was mm-hmm. kind of this like almost sleeping giant of just really well executed, disciplined businessmen. They were totally obsessed with decentralization. They actually printed on their um, uh, their annual report every year, decentralization is the cornerstone of our philosophy. Our job is to hire the best people we can, give them all the responsibility and authority to perform their jobs. David, is this where where I, I can take us through? Uh, in January of 1986, they made one very unconventional yeah. acquisition. Yeah, well, well, uh, before before we get to that, uh, so we just mentioned, you know, Texaco had just bought Getty, mm-hmm. and Tom Murphy, you know, the CEO of Capital Cities, is on the Texaco board. So Bill Grimes, you know, the new president of ESPN, who'd come from CBS, he figures all this out, and so he's like. All right, you know he's worried about his job. He's worried about ESPN. What's going to happen to it as part of Texaco? Yep. Um, he goes to see Tom, and he says, "You know, Tom's based in New England, just like him." He says, "Hey, you should buy ESPN. You know, you're on the board of Texaco. Like, you know, like they don't want this. They want to get rid of it. You should buy ESPN. It's a natural fit. We're the best cable network out there. You own cable distributors. You own all this stuff. Keep it decentralized. Do all this." Tom says, "You know, that's a great idea." I just can't do it right now. I'm working on something bigger. (laughs) And this is a trademark Tom Murphy thing where he would know exactly what price he wanted to pay for something. He would know exactly how operationally efficient he could run it afterwards and he wouldn't pay a dollar more. Yeah. So it was one of those things where he would look at it and then it was just obvious to him. Nope. Sorry. It looks great, but no, not right now. So, but he has this master plan. He's working on something bigger (laughs) to come in one sec but he's on the board of Texaco. Texaco starts a bidding process for ESPN. They're, they're divesting the company. There are two main parties who are interested in buying it. One is Ted Turner down in Atlanta. <laughs> uh, you know, he's, I think, I think CNN is, I think has launched at this point. So he's like, 
you know, the canonical cable entrepreneur. He's the... It turned out it wasn't Atlanta sports that people wanted to watch nationwide, but it was a cable news news. And so he sees, you know, he sees ESPN, ESPN's bigger and and is like... And in fact, the 24-hour aspect of CNN was copied from ESPN. Mm. Um, And so he's like, great, I want to own ESPN. He's like putting together bids. The other interested party is ABC. ABC, they already have this 10% stake that they owned in ESPN, an option for more. So the first thing they do, they buy 5% more from Getty and Texaco. So they get up to a 15% stake. I'm not sure why they did that or how much they paid for it, but they do that. Bidding's going back and forth between them and and Turner. Uh, And again, remember, Tom Murphy's on the board of Texaco. Somehow, ABC ends up winning (laughs) the deal. Uh, Now, they probably would have anyway because they already own 15% of the company and had the inside track. Anyway, they buy the remaining 85% that they don't own of ESPN from Texaco Getty and the Rasmussen still owned their original 15%. Mm. They buy it all out. They now own 100% of ESPN. Which I think is the first and last time that somebody owned 100% 100%. of ESPN. Well, the first time was when the Rasmussen started it. And then this is now the only moment in history where (laughs) ESPN is wholly owned by ABC. They pay $188 million for the 85% that they don't own. And remember, uh, it was valued at like $18 million when Getty sort of first bought it. And yep. then, of course, put a ton of cash into it along the way. Hey, 10x. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take it. It's like um, the Tencent episode. Yeah, 10x. I'll hit that bid. Yeah. <laughs> Again, for like the reasons that are <laughs> completely unknown and just terrible decision. For some reason, ABC, remember Tom Murphy has no control over abc at this point Mm -hmm. they turn around immediately and they resell 20 percent of espn (laughs) to rjr nabisco (laughs) i thought it was hearst no 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 no. hearst then buys it from nabisco Nabisco. this is this is crazy this is this is nuts this is where can can you elaborate on the rjr part of nabisco yeah okay so so (laughs) nabisco people probably at least our our u.s listeners probably know nabisco they think you know it's like a cookies and crackers and and it's a it's a cpg company it's like you know procter and gamble or whatever They had merged with R.J. Reynolds. What's R.J. Reynolds? Sounds innocuous. Turns out R.J. Reynolds is a tobacco company. Camels, Winston's, Salem's. They're headquartered in (laughs) Winston-Salem. All It's the biggest U.S. cigarette company. And at the time, cigarettes were, you know, a big thing. (laughs) Uh, And they would become embroiled in all sorts of lawsuits. But because, you know, they had, uh, of course, their CPG products to sell, but mostly these cigarettes that they're trying to pump out to the U.S., they had all of these spokespeople who were professional athletes. Oh, my God. Uh, And in particular, one of their strongest channels for advertising cigarettes was NASCAR (laughs) and uh, professional racing. And ESPN had really put NASCAR on the map. So NASCAR Hmm. was one of these kind of backwater sports that ESPN, as they were starting, like they needed content. They really kind of elevated. And so Nabisco, RJR Nabisco was super interested in ESPN, had this, thought they would have this great synergistic relationship. They end up buying, buying this 20% stake from abc it was something like abc did that to like free up cash like they wanted cash for some reason yeah i'm not sure why they did it i mean it was terrible idea (laughs) (laughs) on so many levels 
So now, and Tom Murphy, meanwhile, must have been just like just watching this face palming, watching all of this <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because his grand plan soon gets revealed. Yeah. So in January of 86, this is their, uh, you know, they made a series of very conventional small acquisitions that, you know, were in total something to write home about, but individually nothing to write home about. This is very different. So with the help of uh, some financing from from Warren Buffett, who, re- who uh, sort of identifies the twinkle of a soul in another, yep. in, in Tom Murphy. Very um, simpatico. <laughs> yes, yes. Invests uh, both debt and equity, and Capital Cities executes a $3.5 billion purchase of ABC and all their related broadcast assets in New York, Chicago, and L.A., the Wall Street Journal runs the headline the next morning, Minnow Swallows Whale. <laughs> and this is in the beginning of 1985. So like oh, you know, okay. months after all of this went down with ESPN and ABC and Nabisco. So why would they even need to raise the debt capital to do this? Capital Cities itself was not even worth $3.5 billion at the time. So even if they sold every single share in their company to buy ABC, they would not have been able to raise <laughs> enough money. Um, and in fact... This purchase was the largest non-oil and gas transaction in business history to this point, which is like, you know, we're watching yeah. WhatsApp get picked up for for 20 bill. Like yeah. this three and a half billion dollars, completely unheard of outside of yeah. oil and gas. Completely unheard of. So just to to kind of close the loop here in Capital Cities, Murphy and Burke had the track record to show that they could run this same playbook and bring in, you know, their the operating margins that they were used to of over 50% with all the capital cities properties to ABC, which was currently in the low 30s. And so indeed, they did this, they generated a ton of cash, and they were able to pay back all that debt in less than three years, which was earlier than expected. And so three years out, suddenly, like, you know, Capital Cities is not, you know, under all this debt anymore. Mm-hmm. They, they're, it's looking really good. And Cap- remember, ABC, again, which had just acquired ESPN, yep. ABC Broadcasting, they only made revenue from advertising. They weren't getting these affiliate mm-hmm. fees from the cable operators. ESPN now... They're good to, to this, this, the importance <laughs> that's, that's of operating the real jewel margins. of this. Yeah, that's the jewel. Like they're getting, as, as we said, you know, affiliate fees become twice as big as advertising for ESPN over time. They're getting like, it's so much a better business. Yep. So of course, Capital Cities takes the name of ABC because, you know, they own it. It's an unbelievable <laughs> brand. It was really much more of a sort of reverse acquisition for ABC. So their, their culture, product, headcount, balance sheet, everything looked much more like Capital Cities than it ever did ABC, even though the company is, is sort of called ABC now. So crazy aside, before finishing this up, Dan Burke's son, Steve Burke, also rose to prominence through through Disney and then through the media industry. He's now in 2019 the current CEO of NBC Universal. I know, crazy. It's a total dynasty. Crazy. It's worth noting. So a, a decade later, well, actually, I'll come back to this as we dip into Disney here a little bit. <laughs> well, so okay, so that transaction gets done with Capital Cities minnow swallowing the whale of ABC uh, in March of 1985 immediately remember Nabisco, like they're trying to pump out these cigarettes. Uh, (laughs) They go see Tom Murphy and say, oh, hey, you know, you really wanted ABC, right? You didn't want this ESPN thing. Let us just buy it all out from you. We'll pay you $500 million for it. (laughs) And and actually, that probably was really hard to turn down for uh, Tom and Capital Cities because they just, you know, raised all this debt to buy ABC. Nabisco thinks they're going to get it. But, you know... Tom is smarter than that. <laughs> and he says, 
thank you very much for your offer. I am going to turn it down. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's pretty incredible. Nabisco is willing to pay $500 million for ESPN. I, I think th- it was valuing it at $500 million. And what's the time frame from when? This was 1985, and it was just before in... 1984 when abc had bought it for 188 million dollars for 85 percent. wow so you know people are starting to realize the what they have value here. in this thing yeah 1986 was a huge year for espn on the business side together now with a abc all under one house they get abc and espn together under under capital cities mm-hmm. they get nfl rights for the first time boom boom and this has been, as you were alluding to, Sunday night football, Monday night football. Mm-hmm. Uh, it becomes huge. And not only that, the business innovation at ESPN, like we can't overstate how important it was. They've already started extracting fees from cable operators. They had to pay a ton of money to get the NFL rights. The NFL, of course, knows mm-hmm. how knew how valuable this was. Um, but it was nowhere near sort of the crazy prices that it is today. That it is today. But still, for, for the time, I mean, it was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what does ESPN do? They go back to their cable operators and they say, hey, we just acquired these rights. <laughs> this is going to be, you know, ESPN was already super valuable. Now it's going to be astronomically valuable. But it cost us a lot of money to do this. We're actually going to, you know, the, the amount that we paid for these rights, we're going to push it down to you and we're going to increase your affiliate fees commensurately to offset 100% of the cost that we're paying for these rights. <laughs> and there's, of course, nothing that those cable affiliates can do. They can't do. And, and there's a whole big showdown. And again, a couple of them say, like, we're not doing that. We walk. And within weeks, their subscribers are calling them up. They're petitioning. They're canceling. <laughs> like, they're, they really, they have no leverage. Um, and to give you a sense, it's it's been sort of climbing. I think originally we talked about it being 10 cents. 2013, it rises to like five bucks. I think it may have risen to somewhere in sort of the $8 range. Like it's really, over time, it really grows. Yeah. And on, on the back of it, I mean, to give you a sense, that is, you know, by this time, they are over five. The, the carriage fees, the per subscriber fees that cable operators are paying ESPN is over five times any other channel out there, <laughs> CNN, what have you, you know, A&E, like all these other cable channels, ESPN just dwarfs all of them. Yeah. ESPN is the thing people watch on cable and ESPN knows it. Yeah. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts, so frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. 
And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com acquired. So, okay. Quickly, back to RJR Nabisco, <laughs> our tobacco peddling friends. If you are familiar with the Warren Buffett uh, type of history, not Warren himself, but um, you know, uh, private equity and leverage buyouts, uh, you might know a little bit about the most infamous deal that the firm KKR ever did, which was in 1989, they do the largest LBO in history, leverage buyout in history. They acquire RJR Nabisco mm. for $24.5 billion. And this becomes the subject of the book Barbarians at the Gate. Classic, classic book. Also got made into a movie. Um, we should note here, too, a lot of the history that we're taking for ESPN comes from a great book. Those guys have all the fun. Mm-hmm. Um, focuses really more on kind of the cultural history of ESPN, but it's, it's just such, so great. Like oral histories and interviews with everyone has a bunch of the business history, too. So Nabisco gets acquired by KKR. They take out an insane amount of debt to finance <laughs> this thing, like absolutely insane. They start selling off assets to start paying down the debt. And uh, one of the things that they sell off is their 20% stake at mm. this point in ESPN that they sell to the Hearst Corporation uh, for $175 million. Oof. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Hearst got a deal. People just like, especially these these non-media businesses that owned parts of ESPN, they just do not understand the value. Well, it shows a lot of that timing dictates so much in the price that these things get sold for. It's sort of like when you buy a house and suddenly like you must get rid of your house. You can't wait around for the best offer. Like you're now a seller, not a, not a, um, you know, it's not like you're not raising right now. You are very (laughs) actively raising right now. That's (laughs) that's not a good place to be. So Hearst still to this day owns 20% of ESPN and have been repaid on their investment which could, many hundreds of times over. <laughs> can we talk about that? Like, we're about to get to this Disney thing, but like, in everybody's head, like, Disney owns ESPN. Disney owns 80% of ESPN. They yeah. operate ESPN, but Hearst still owns 20% of the yeah. freaking business. It's crazy. Hearst does, they don't do anything. They're a minority shareholder. So Disney operates it. The PL flows through to Hearst, but um, Hearst, of course, the William Randolph Hearst organization, you know, <laughs> uh, the publishing magnet. Um, subject of the movie Citizen Kane, there's other things within the Hearst Corporation now, Condé Nast and, and that like uh, the likes of that. But their 20% stake <laughs> in ESPN is all of it, basically all the value there. It's, um, it's totally crazy, especially and this the price of this deal, like by the late 80s, early 90s, like ESPN is is ESPN at this point. We're talking Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann on SportsCenter, mm-hmm. Stuart Scott, like, booyah, you mm-hmm. know? You got Rich Eisen and Kenny Mayne and Linda Cohn. Like, it is a cultural icon. Yep. It's what you leave on in the living room while you're making breakfast. Totally. Or or 24-7. Yep. I mean, in my house growing up, it was literally like ESPN was on 
all day you and every day 40 to 50 other million americans i know it was awesome uh 1994 they hire the famed ad agency wyden kennedy that of course had always done uh nike to do the this is sports center commercials so oh my god Um, so good the best one ever i think is the uh lance armstrong cycling in the basement (laughs) yes (laughs) yes or lebron's uh lebron's throne yeah. That. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. It's like I can't. It's like Stuart Scott or someone walks, uh, uh, or LeBron w- tries to walk back to his cube in uh, <laughs> in Bristol, and he sort of looks, and uh, his chair is not there, and he looks in the cube next to him, and I think it's like Stuart Scott is sitting in a throne at his desk, <laughs> and Stuart turns around, he's like, "Oh, oh sorry, is this your chair?" <laughs> <laughs> so so good. I mean, those guys like we go read. Those guys have all the fun. Uh, the the book because it really gets into all this, but. You know, just every the popular culture, like you can't you cannot understate the impact of, you know, Stuart Scott and cool is the other side of the pillow and <laughs> booyah and just like it changed everything. Yep. Uh, everything. Um, so anyway, ESPN is crushing it through the early 90s. And then in the summer of 1995, yeah. our friend Mr. Buffett makes another reappearance. He does. And he uh he suggests to Tom Murphy that uh, he should get together with Michael Eisner, who's the CEO of Disney. This is at the Allen and Company. Yes, when they're when they're both in Sun Valley at the <laughs> Allen and Company uh, gathering yep. of uh, media and now technology, a uh, hundred millionaires and billionaires. <laughs> this is amazing kind of how fast this deal got done and so in a matter of days they had worked out the terms and disney buys of course because berkshire hathaway is still a large investor in capital cities at this point Mm -hmm. disney buys abc which contains capital cities or is capital cities and contains espn for 19 billion dollars which represents 13x cash flow and 28x net income yeah and was at the time the third largest acquisition Ever. Of course, the RJR Nabisco buyout had happened mm-hmm. um, a few years before. That was the largest. It goes so well. But third largest deal ever. And of course, the cable network division of, uh, <laughs> of ABC Capital Cities is the jewel uh, at this point, and of which all of that is ESPN. Yeah, I, th- I think it's something like of that 19 billion, I think it was something like 4 billion alone is attributable to ESPN. It may yeah. have been, it may have even been more than that. I mean, hard to say exactly. Whatever it was, by the kind of mid 2000s, the cable network division within Disney, which does include, uh, you know, the Disney Channel and s- some other things, but ESPN is, is you know, 90 plus percent of it or whatever, mm-hmm. um, that is driving over half, over 50% of all the operating profit for the Walt Disney Company. Like, theme parks movies you know everything you know merchandise all of it espn (laughs) is over half of the profit yeah and if we really want to fast forward and and, you know i think the modern era of espn is a very it's a it's a different story that we should tell in its own right but a quick snapshot so uh, there was a analyst estimate from an investment bank in 2015 that espn alone was worth 50 billion dollars yeah crazy i mean really you know it's funny we did our Back in season one, our Disney trilogy, which was great, and there certainly are more um, more episodes we'll have to do to add on to that in the future. But this is like this is the foundation of it all. Like, of course, Disney was a great company before the ABC Capital Cities deal. But like, if you look at just pure value creation within Disney, like you know, Lucasfilm, Pixar, Marvel, whatever they've done, you know, in the past, like 
these are peanuts compared mm-hmm. to ESPN. Mm-hmm. So one really interesting way to reflect back on this is a phenomenal book called The Outsiders, which is about unconventional CEOs who sort of uh, defied what other people were doing at the time in their industry and ran ran their business a different way. And, and the first chapter is about capital cities. So super instrumental to the research for, for this uh, episode, had this great comment to give the rise of capital cities some context. If you had invested a dollar with Tom Murphy when he became CEO in 1966, that dollar would be worth $204 at the time he sold to Disney. That's a remarkable 19.9% IRR over the 29 years, which significantly outpaced the S&P 500 10.1%. I mean, just continuous, maniacal, ludicrous (laughs) growth. (laughs) Well, you see why uh, Warren Buffett... uh likes him yep we're gonna wrap up history and facts on this episode here uh ben as i think you alluded to at some point the there is another major acquisition in the story here that happens uh in the either in the 90s or 2000s mm-hmm. we'll have to do the work um of a company called Starwave, actually here in seattle yeah like a mile um, from where we're sitting yeah which uh becomes we're doing an in-person episode today uh which is awesome that becomes the backbone of all the digital assets com, fantasy what would become the apps you know bill streaming. simmons podcasting all of that yeah. that'll be a super fun one for for another day so but we won't get into that here acquisition category for this okay so which which acquisition <laughs> are we categorizing i suppose it's a business line in basically every case yeah because there's not that much integration that really happens here in any of these things it's no, not like they're none, integrating none. a product into their sales channel they're of course by like espn just had an insane amount of talent one of their differentiators where they were an amazing sort of magnet and talent development pipeline but like a lot of these times where we talk about plugging in a product to improve your flywheel effects there's that to some degree and in fact disney talked about michael eisner at the time of this big acquisition was doing the press circuit and talking about how espn was a brand upon which they could could apply disney's resources and really fuel that brand to be other things that was less successful i think yeah. than like they espn zone and all these different ESP, espn the magazine was fine um but like the core business is still really the, yeah. the carriage fees but so, espn didn't need disney to do a magazine like right, you know right um, and it's not like you know prominent espn things in the theme parks are driving a material piece of it so to me it was a amazing business line that uh with sort of the right continued management and access to capital and could kind of keep growing on its own and the business line itself just kept getting bought yeah and even going back to the original getty oil investment like that's what it was (laughs) it was diversifying out of oil it was a business line like Mm -hmm. they weren't going to integrate that into the oil company um And, and for folks new to the show uh we have categories for this people technology product business line asset consolidation or other and that's sort of grown over time the way that we differentiate between product and business line is you know if if a product would be facebook buying instagram and then plugging it into their existing business this this is sort of this is not that this is its own business yeah our next section that we do is what would have happened otherwise i was also struggling to think about this but i actually think the to me the interesting story here is not what would have happened otherwise it's like <laughs> what should have happened otherwise but didn't like you know <laughs> nabisco like cigarettes like all that like there were so many things along the way like getting oil like any other business that hadn't captured such huge waves and 
brought such huge innovations to the industry mm-hmm. would have been capsized by all these machinations like Getty, Texaco, RJR Nabisco, like ABC before mm-hmm. Capital Cities. Like the management and ownership stewardship of this company was terrible, yet it survived and thrived. I think just because the wave it was running was so powerful, you know? Yeah, I would say often really what it was was amazing management under questionable ownership. <laughs> uh, yes. Fortunately, a lot of the time that ownership was minority, so they could sort of continue to run the or business. Or at least acted like minority even when they were majority. majority yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think uh, it's almost like it, it really threaded the needle on managing to realize its true potential without anything disastrous happening. Yeah, yeah. You know, again, these huge innovations, you know, 24 hours, like community, mm-hmm. and like especially around Sports Center and, you know, um, and the affiliate fee business model. Like these are these are huge innovations. Yep. Tech themes. Yeah. So my first one is a point that was made in the outsiders. There are studies and this kind of I think happens over and over again that show that uh, two thirds of acquisitions destroy value. And of course, that's why we are doing this show, because we thought it'd be fun to cover ones that manage to not and figure out how did they manage to not destroy value. Capital Cities, over and over again, was masterful at it. So I was trying to sort of tease out what, what made them so good. So Murphy was able to acquire companies with confidence because the first piece is the business was already so decentralized that whenever they would acquire a company integration would be easier because there wasn't significant integration to do. They really sort of like installed the right managers and sort of yep. trusted them to run it. Um, and number two was they were so efficient at growing margins in their own business and knew that sort of their their playbook could do that, that they could effectively lower the acquisition price because they knew that they could accelerate payback. Mm-hmm. And so when they could bid higher than someone else, and of course, they didn't really end up buying a lot at auctions, but when they did identify something they wanted and they, they'd go after it, they knew exactly what their price could be because they knew exactly what the resulting cash flows would be five years out, or at least could do pretty effective forecasting. So they were able to get conviction in acquiring these assets. So I just thought that was worth mentioning as as we really people often ask david and i like what uh so what have you guys learned from the show like what are the what are the things that make a technology acquisition successful and this is one where in this particular type of business model in this media business you know running this this combination of decentralized and lean really did allow them to uh efficiently make acquisitions that were very likely to be successful yeah it's been fun learning about uh capital cities and learning from learning from you ben did most of the research on it it's not a story that's oft told, you know, uh, Tom Murphy is, you know, nobody knows Tom Murphy, like everybody knows Warren Buffett. Um, but, uh, you can just learn so much from how these, how these people have, have allocated capital and operated. Yep. You know, my big one, my big learning from this is, uh, in a lot of ways this is obvious, but it hadn't really quite crystallized for me until this episode that like, to often to get a like huge huge generation defining company which espn absolutely is like i put it in the same category as google or facebook or tencent or alibaba or whatever just wasn't an independent entity this combination of like you have to both ride a huge you know technology wave uh in this case, the technology wave was uh, cable. cable. Mm-hmm. But you also, if you can marry that with a business model innovation, like that's how you can become just so incredibly mm-hmm. dominant. You know, in ESPN's case, like literally 5x bigger than any other yeah, <laughs> cable think, network. I think you talked about this a bunch on the LP show, like really digging into what is the appropriate and sort of 
the highest form of perfection of business model for a given medium? Mm-hmm. And can you really exploit that new piece of technology with the appropriate business model to sort of, you know, flank an industry from the side instead of ever needing mm-hmm. to attack anyone head on? Totally. And I think about like Tencent did this equally as well, right? Like, you know, they ride the wave of uh, PC usage and then mobile, you know, usage and penetration in China. And they marry that to a huge business model innovation with the freemium business model. Yep. And uh, no one can touch them, you know, <laughs> uh, except maybe ByteDance. <laughs> That's my big one. Well, I had uh, just to revisit one that we mentioned earlier. I think it is interesting reflecting back on what activities did ESPN for, uh, perform that were sort of market capitalizing, effectively wave riding, and what mm-hmm. ones did they do that were market creating? I think... They mostly are in the business of market creation. Mm-hmm. And I think that they're, uh, you know, this even continued after, like far after uh, where this episode ends, sort of with uh, with fantasy football being mm-hmm. the driver of why people like the NFL. I think ESPN has actually done a lot of work in creating why the NFL is a platform for American yeah. social activity. And I, I think, uh, just like they did with March Madness and NASCAR and yep. so many others. Yep. Yeah. There it's, it, you can almost think of them as a platform company in the way that sort of Microsoft created a platform on which other people could make more money than Microsoft itself made in total. I think that's probably the case with, with ESPN too. They were just a sort of an unlock for creating a ton of value in the ecosystem. Yeah, Totally. Um, And then lastly, it's interesting to just reflect on uh, the media industry and sort of there's content and there's distribution. And ESPN has always been content. And reflecting back on the Kara Swisher episode, many people have tried throughout the years, including AOL to uh, uh, with AOL Time Warner to achieve the the dream of marrying content with distribution mm-hmm. um, and we're kind of seeing disney do that now in a new era where they're trying to you know pull this is a again a foreshadow but pull off of netflix and pull off all these streaming services and introduce disney plus um and i think it's it's interesting to just look at this this acquisition in the context of that eventual dream of of marrying both together mm-hmm. and it's funny that it, it kind of incredible that espn was able to spend the money to produce the content but then make the money from getting other people to distribute it for them. Yeah, yeah. Talk about differentiated content. Yeah. Well, and, you know, another thing we haven't talked about here that um, probably wasn't as important in the time period of history where we're focusing on ESPN here, but it's critical now, is the live component, especially as, you know, everything has transitioned over the last few years to streaming and whatnot. Like, what is the most only really remaining defensible piece of traditional television type programming it's live and what is the most live compelling live programming it's sports Sports. yep yep you want to grade it let's do it what are we what are we grading i think we should grade the disney acquisition of capital cities but it's worth talking about the others too so i think the disney acquisition of capital cities was an a or an A plus or something, and we can talk about that. The Capital Cities acquisition of ABC is whatever whatever we decide for Disney is the same thing for Capital Cities acquiring ABC because really, like, it's was it a good idea long term to own ESPN for a much more nominal price than the super high value that it's worth today? Was yep. yes in both cases. The ABC acquisition of ESPN, that's just like <laughs> no no doubt A plus, right? Like, <laughs> right. Uh, whatever enterprise value of 200 and some odd million that they paid for it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. And then the only people that I suppose it may not be an A plus four or an A four or whatever is uh is Getty when they sort of mm-hmm. acquired it from the Rasmussen's. Hey, ten um, X. It was a ten X. They did have to pour a lot of money into it yep, over time. They did. To, uh, to float, so. Getty, I think the yeah, the it's almost like you can you can bucket out the winners and losers here, or like the the winners, the big winners and the not so big winners. Getty in the not so big winner, Texaco <laughs> for sure. They were like barely even played at the table yep. uh nabisco <laughs> loser hearst hearst might be the biggest winner of all they didn't have to do anything <laughs> uh paid 175 million for 20 percent of the company i wonder if hearst's market cap are they publicly they're traded? not a public company if they were a yeah. public company i wonder if their market cap would be lower than their share yeah of the you SPN have like a naspers situation, situation with tencent yeah, yeah. It's like discounted because you can't get it liquid yeah yeah I, i'm sure it would be but yeah hearst is still a uh, private family-owned company is espn too expensive now with not enough perceived headroom for where it could grow for uh anyone to want to buy it from hearst could be yeah why wouldn't disney but uh, it it doesn't matter right like they've been getting cash flow distributions for decades Decades. you know (laughs) yeah but that is a good question like would anybody want to buy that from hearst right now i don't know yeah Um, all right all right where are you on uh disney acquiring abc slash capital cities containing espn well i mean no doubt it's an a right like uh even without the exact numbers at my fingertips, if half of your operating income as an entire company is coming from ESPN, you know, uh, within a decade of the acquisition, no matter what you paid for it, and, and the 19 billion, I forget what Disney's market cap was at the time, um, whatever it was. A- anyway, I would say with plenty of fudge factor based on what these numbers were that we don't have at our fingertips, I- I'm fairly confident it was an A. Yeah, it is worth noting the contrast to like, uh, our, our sort of two biggest A pluses of all time, or maybe three, are next reverse acquiring Apple. Yep. Uh, Facebook acquiring Facebook Instagram. Facebook acquiring Instagram and uh, booking, uh, Priceline acquiring booking. Priceline acquiring booking, yep. And this is different than next in that it was not company saving. Like Disney w- would have been fine, yeah. right? But nowhere near what they are. Right. So, you know, if we're like reserving the pluses for yeah. company saving or something, it wasn't that. But yeah, I agree. And I'm, I'm not a plus. I'm, yeah, a, I'm an A. It's an A. Because they still paid $19 billion for it. Like, <laughs> you know, it's not like. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It's not like they, uh, you know, invested uh, uh, when uh, and this isn't like Tencent here. <laughs> right. And let's even say half. So in 95, they paid, call it $10 billion-ish for ESPN, just kind of as a conservative thing. And today or in I, I won't say peak in the late 2000s it was 50 billion like it's a 5x over a decade it's great and it's but that's that's value they also have been getting tons of cash flow from it over those years yeah. so um uh, yeah i think it's definitely an a owning espn today yeah, for sure <laughs> for sure now when we talk about starwave and espn going forward next story. time uh we can't promise it will be actually next time but at some point in the future on acquired yeah, we should do it All carve right. outs carve outs I have an inc- incredibly appropriate one. So there is a very cool podcast uh, that has been started by the folks at GeekWire, um, in addition to their their regular podcast uh, called Numbers Geek. And uh, Todd Bishop, the co-founder of GeekWire. Uh, Friend of the show, Todd Bishop. Indeed. And, and uh, you know, a special guest on the Push Pops exactly. Push Pop Press episode. Boy, that was early on. 
his co-host or, or maybe his featured guest every time is Steve Ballmer. And uh, Steve, uh, Steve Ballmer, of course, the former CEO of Microsoft, owner of the LA Clippers. Now the, uh, the, he's used sort of his, his private family wealth to uh, release USA facts. So really yep. diving into making it easy to understand sort of um, the important numbers about the, the US, both in government spending, but across a lot of important issues. So they do this great podcast called Numbers Geek. The most recent episode was fascinating. It was called The Basketball Box Score Mystery. Todd presented Steve with a uh, stat sheet, very, very detailed stat sheet from a basketball game, a famous basketball game, and obfuscated the names of all the players and the names of the teams. And he said, Steve, analyze this and give me your best guess at what two teams were playing, what this game was, and who each of these players were on the stat lines. And it's really fun because, you know, Balmer is such a uh, a basketball geek and has been for a long time, long before buying the Clippers, to sort of have him sort of uh, try and analyze and, and understand everything from, oh, I bet this player was injured and this other player was taking some of his minutes because he was injured. I think this might have been a playoff game. So it's a really cool. And Mm. as as I was thinking through this episode, you know, just a great tie in with ESPN. Mm. Uh, My carve out. uh, I'm going to have to listen to that. That sounds awesome. Um, My carve out is uh, also near and dear to the show and, and our community's heart is a great, great long piece that Fast Company just released on SoftBank and Masa and his ambitions and where the Vision Fund and SoftBank and WeWork and everything goes from here by uh, Katrina Brooker and championed by editor and huge supporter of Acquired, David Lidsky. So thank you so much for all your support. Yeah, um, yeah David is, uh, I mentioned the Slack earlier, David is like a awesome awesome member in the slack that, so uh, great uh and this piece is is really really good i i wish it uh i wish it had been out when we did our episode on the vision fund um but so the my favorite moment is this image of when softbank uh corporate acquired arm uh which we'll have to do an episode on someday oh yeah and the deal getting done in the turkish mediterranean in an empty restaurant that masa had bought out and then like helicoptered in all the principles from arm <laughs> like <laughs> amazing why not amazing so it's awesome this is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies crusoe so Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where quote-unquote energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. 
If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, go to crusocloud.com slash acquired, that's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired, or click the link in the show notes. Well, folks, thanks as always for going on this journey with us. If you aren't subscribed and you want to hear more, you can subscribe from your favorite podcast client. If you uh, like the show and, and want to dive deeper with us as a limited partner, you should join the club. We're, uh, uh, you can click the link in the show notes and get access to a special deeper episode in between every episode that we release uh, on the main show. Um, or you can go to Kimberlite.fm slash acquired. We'll see you next time. We will. Oh,